Hello everyone, my name is Dolika Gottlieb and I would like to welcome you to European Health Union Now, a podcast series produced by the European Health Forum Gastein for the European Health Union Initiative. Hello and welcome. My name is Ilona Kickbush and I'm the founding director of the Global Health Center at the Graduate Institute in Geneva. This is the first of a series of podcasts in the scope of the European Health Union Initiative, in which we discuss current political events and developments through the lens of ideas and aims that are linked to the European Health Union Initiative. And these are both focused on Europe, but also focused on Europe's responsibilities in the world. The European Health Union Initiative calls on the political leaders of Europe to commit to creating a solidaric, equitable, people-centered European Health Union. For this first podcast, we will be discussing some issues that are really critical for this concept right now, and I'm pleased to welcome two people involved in initiating this initiative. Clemens Auer, who is the co-chair of the EU Vaccines Task Force and Special Envoy for Health at Austria's Federal Ministry for Labour, Social Affairs, Health and Consumer Protection. He is also the president of the European Health Forum Gastein, and he is a member of the executive board of the World Health Organization. And then Anik de Ruter, Associate Professor of EU Health Law and Policy at the University of Amsterdam. The topic of today's podcast is, how could it not be, vaccine nationalism. And some of you might have read that some people are even going beyond this term and are talking about vaccine apartheid. There was initially significant global solidarity in evidence when the world needed to come together to develop COVID-19 vaccines in 2020. The problem began when we got the vaccines faster than we thought. That has led partly to what some people call a fiasco with wealthy countries hoarding vaccines, slow EU procurement of vaccines and a vaccine race between the European Union and a range of other countries. There are also difficulties facing the COVAX initiative, which have called the concept of global solidarity, global public goods, or the people's vaccine, as it is sometimes called, into question. So there is a range of critique about high-income countries having retreated into nationalist mindsets and approaches and disregarding the important orientation that no one is safe until everyone is safe. Furthermore, and I hope we'll get back to that in our discussions, there is very little sharing of knowledge between the pharmaceutical manufacturers and many high-income countries are also resisting the waiver of IP agreements in WTO negotiations, which would be required for worldwide mass production of vaccines. 
but there seems to be some small shifts happening that maybe Clemens will also refer to. If we go back to one of the key founders of uh, the European Union, Jacques Delors, who is now 94 years old, uh, he spoke about the apparent lack of solidarity shown between member states during the pandemic. He gave a very, very explicit warning that the failure to demonstrate solidarity could put the European Union itself at risk. This is what we want to discuss, and we'll approach it from two angles. On the one hand, how is this developing within the European Union? How is solidarity being lived and discussed there? And how about the solidarity of the European Union with the rest of the world? So let's start the discussion. And Anik, I want to turn to you first because one of the uh, reactions we had uh, when uh, this debate on vaccines really started to heat up, uh, many people asked the question, with that, is the idea of a European health union under threat? Do the recent events, especially the EU triggering Article 16, endanger the concept of a European health union? What would you say? Um, I think there are two ways that I would want to answer that question. The one is empirically, what is actually going on on the ground and in politics right now. And the other one is more um, theoretically or, or more idealistic, perhaps. So when we look empirically, you might say yes. Uh, member states, not so much right now uh, out in the open, but there's clear critique uh, on the way that uh, European leaders at the European Commission has handled uh, the slow rollout of the vaccines and the responses to the lack of control over exports and things like that. Uh, and member states can, can look at that and can say, well, the EU promised to deliver us these vaccines at a particular time and it's not delivering on its promise. So next time we do it again, we go at it alone. Um, that could be uh, empirically what goes on right now, and that could, of course, also threaten future ideas of, of further integration in this area in the EU. But I think theoretically and sort of more idealistically looking into the future, this especially has shown us that you can no longer do this alone, because what is happening right now is not very different from what happened during swine flu. When the swine flu broke out, it was much worse, actually. Yeah, there were really some member states in the EU that had almost all the vaccines and some member states had very little or none. And a lot of these member states were, were left with excess vaccines and they called on the European Commission at the time to ensure that there was a better distribution across the EU. Now, after that, the European Commission had asked for stronger power in this area, and the member states said, no, we'll, we'll keep doing this on a voluntary basis, but anyway, we want to keep our autonomy to be able to do this alone. And so when swine flu broke out, everything had to be done on the fly. So to be then surprised that you're a little bit late in the game <laughs> and that things are more difficult in practice, I think it's also a little bit on the member states themselves. And so I think that when you look at what happened now, this is also a very good case for better politics, better ideals to say next time, we should not be the last 
person in the room, but we should try to be the first. Thank you, Anik. So always an opportunity to learn from a crisis. Uh, let's move to Clemens. Clemens, you're very close to this. You know, when you were sitting or are sitting in the EU vaccine task force, do you sometimes wish that you had more power, that the commission could move forward more quickly, more rapidly? Uh, what has your experience been and how unfair has some of the criticism been that we've heard? As Nick said, I also remember the days of the swine flu very well because I was in a similar position to secure the supply for vaccines for Austria back then. And Austria was on its own. This time it worked much better. It did take time. But I have been surprised as a good student of European affairs how fast everything has gone, considering we started working together in June last year. Immediately after we started working, we already have decided on a large risk-sharing portfolio of six different vaccines, and we had no clue back in June which of these candidates might get the market authorization or not. But we did it together because we said very deliberately that we, 27 member states, plus the European Commission, will share the risk of pre-purchasing contracts, down payments, because this is easing the burden on all of our shoulders. The problem right now is not the procurement, not the numbers we secured for European citizens. More than 2.3 billion doses are secured under contract for 450 million Europeans. This is the good news. But we do have a problem with the production, supply, and delivery right now. And each one of us in this European Commission Committee I am co-chairing, and all my friends in the different EU capitals, all knew that in the early months following the market authorization, we would only have a low number of vaccines delivered. Because this is the nature of production. Without a market authorization, you cannot get vaccines on the shelf. We all had vaccination plans in our member states. We each said we would take a stepwise approach. In phase one, we will only vaccinate people in nursing homes and healthcare providers because we don't have more. And in phase two, we built on that, and so on. We had these plans in place since last September, October to proceed at a steady, phase-by-phase pace. But politics and the media have also created an expectation which cannot be fulfilled. We have a problem between supply and demand and expectation. Thank you, Clemens. Annie, could you comment a bit more on that? Because it does seem that uh, the... A communication around the vaccination was really, I would say, a failure. And if I think of the media that I read and listen to, there was an enormous, even hysteria built up around expectations about delivery. Every story of somebody who couldn't get through on a telephone was put in a headline. Uh, what do you think went wrong? Who should have communicated? the commission, the countries, uh, 
who should have acted better here in explaining things to the European populations? Well, I mean, it's understandable a little bit that this goes wrong because for the, I think for the European Commission or for the European Union, this is, of course, a golden hour. Finally, in something that people really care about, some health, the EU is able to do something directly for its citizens. So it's very understandable that this is a jubilation moment, a moment of finally commissioner, people getting to know <laughs> the commissioners, the commissioner of health, who, whoever, whatever citizen would have seen quotes by the, by the European commissioner for health in their national uh, newspapers. And now all of a sudden, you know, they were delivering on, on the, the vaccine. I mean, this is unbelievable. And, and actually, this is why I was so interested in this area in swine flu as well, because you, I could imagine if this would have been, if swine flu would have been really, really bad, this would have been a politically a, a golden moment at the time as well. And so it was only waiting for the time that this would happen. And that is right now with COVID. And so it's very understandable that, um, there were very positive stories coming out. Finally, we can deliver. But indeed, of course, they could have expected this. And they did also in the contracts, as you can see, or as, as stories are coming out that the contracts always, and this was the same with swine flu as well, you always take into consideration the production process. It doesn't all come out all at once. It's not all there. So, so and that there can be delays and there can be difficulties with distribution. I remember with swine flu, it was even, you know, the labeling that was problematic. So there can be all kinds of very practical things that go wrong. And it was just waiting for that moment. But for the political backlash, that I think was a little bit unexpected. And also the, the kind of panic politics that happened afterwards. I mean, to, to you, ha you have had no control over exports, then just say, say, explain to people how difficult it is and people will understand uh, so i think there and also if you look now in some of the notes on the of the health security committee communication health communication making agreements about who communicates about what is outlined again and again as something that is problematic so if we're learning from this next time we should have some better communication plans ready and this is just another aspect of preparedness Thank you, Anika. And it seems to be a general uh, issue that the so-called soft areas like communication are neglected. And uh, then you pay the price for that, both politically and in terms of trust. Clemens, there's another issue that has turned up and that has people saying that the European Union should have been more proactive in building production facilities. What do you answer to that challenge? I'm amazed, to be honest, that we already have these huge production capacities up and running. Because it was a tremendous effort by the companies to achieve that. And if you look at the Pfizer-BioNTech partnership, BioNTech was a small German company that together with Pfizer has become one of the most promising producers of COVID vaccines. BioNTech immediately built factories and production capacities. I have witnessed this also in Austria. Overall production capacity has been secured because the industry wanted to do it. And we have asked them for a huge supply of vaccines. Can you imagine? Back then, BioNTech was not even hooked up with a company like Pfizer. 
to say, okay, we can deliver 300 million doses within a couple of months. You have to face the reality of drug development and you cannot rush the different steps required. These companies all moved as fast as they could, doing many things simultaneously, which would normally be done sequentially. The AMA followed suit with the rolling review. And let me say one more thing. As an Austrian official involved in the swine flu response back in the day, we were one of the lucky few European member states because we secured a contract with one of the promising vaccine producers. Back then it was Baxter. And I was one of the guys sitting in the council meetings and other European meetings to be blamed that I am nationalistic and egoistic because we have saved and secured our national demand. So I remember that. And now we did it very, very differently. And I have to be frank and open. This joint procurement process has been very, very beneficial for the small member states, for the Baltic states, for the Eastern European states, even for a mid-sized country like Austria or for the Netherlands, that we all have access to the same portfolio of vaccine, the same numbers, at the same time, at a good price, and not in a first-come, first-served, every country for itself manner. And I think this is a story of solidarity and will ultimately be judged to have been a success. I agree. It's a, yeah, it's a success story. If you compare it to swine flu and everything that happened then, it's definitely true. I agree. So to this part of our podcast, we can say that both our guests agree that uh, this is actually an argument for a strong European health union through the way it has been approached. It has showed the potential that a European health union has when it acts together, that it does lead to more fairness between member states, that it can secure the delivery of vaccines in an equitable way to all member states, and that it really shows a new type of solidarity in which uh, one can move forward. Now, let's take that to the next... But, Ilona, one more step into the future. Please. I would like to see that we take this example of the joint procurement for COVID vaccines to the next level, which means joint procurement of innovative medicines for the whole European Union. Because we know access to innovative medicines is not guaranteed within the EU. We see it again and again. If a new innovative product comes into the EU market, only a few member states have access to these innovations and the rest do not. I hope we can transform this best practice, even if it's under fire right now, it is still a best practice. And in the future, we should focus on purchasing innovative medicines for the whole European Union together. 
Yes, and that would lead, you know, to uh, the whole issue of a stronger uh, role of existing European agencies. Uh, it would also lead uh, to possibly a new agency, HERA, uh, that would also be involved in innovation and research and provide incentives to actually develop them. And then, and again, that leads me to my next step, obviously making them available not only within Europe, but also uh, at a global level. And this is uh, the second issue we wanted to discuss uh, in this podcast. We all know that the European Union has been much more active at the global level. Uh, it has supported the joint initiative COVAX uh, from the very start. And we can say that, you know, COVAX is suffering to some extent uh, from uh, the same issues that the European Union response has been suffering, that uh, the vaccines have arrived much more rapidly than the organization has been able to sort out all the issues that are at stake. But Clement has alluded to the fact that Europe has bought uh, uh, so many vaccines and there is an increasing nervousness also in the global media, in civil society, and, for example, in African countries, where uh, I believe uh, President Kagame said clearly, we will no longer wait uh, for charity. Uh, the Director General of the WHO said, we are at the brink of a moral failure. So, uh, to what extent uh, has the European Union actually already contributed significantly to the global effort? And how do you think the next steps of contribution will be, both politically and very practically in terms of sharing, in terms of WTO agreements, and in terms of what has been suggested, a new treaty, a new pandemic treaty that would bind countries in terms of the global solidarity. Can I go to you, Anik, first? Uh, how do you see the situation? How do you analyze it, that interface between the European action within and the link to the global solidarity overall? Well, I mean, I think it's been a very complex political situation because it wasn't only the solidarity and, and the, 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 the quick rollout that was poss made possible, but it was also the U.S.'s role, of course, that was retreating and now is coming back and the EU stepping up in that regard. And so it's been such a complex of events in such a short amount of time that it's really hard to make sense of it all. I think right now, clearly the EU has improved or has strengthened its role in global health in this area, in the area of medicines and, and, and pandemic medicines. And it has made a, a large contribution from the beginning, stepping up basically where the US was stepping down. And now, of course, COVAX is also going to be similarly to the type of uh, mechanism that the European Commission created after the uh, swine flu, it will be a, a mechanism because we will have access of uh, procurement probably in the EU. So COVAX will be a mechanism to then redistribute those vaccines that are not needed here to elsewhere. That means, and this is an unfair situation, that indeed will get access first before others. And so the kind of solidarity that we're now creating at, in the EU is not 
translated to the global arena, not by the EU anyway, but that doesn't mean it's not doing something. It is doing something, but it's for, for many people just not doing enough. Uh, thank you, Anik. Clemens, you're uh, active in both arenas. I mentioned that uh, you are on the executive board of the WHO, so you know the global situation very well. Uh, through being uh, on the EU vaccine panel, you know that situation very well. Would you want to explain to our listeners how the two interface and uh, in what way the European Union has been investing in the global effort? Yeah, this is a good, very good question because I really <clears throat> observed all these worlds and I want to try to be active in all these different layers of, of, of policy making. See, I was a, a strong supporter of COVAX because I thought this is the way forward, you know, to show, um, show uh, global solidarity and secure access uh, to, to, to the whole world, to the global community, and not only to, to us, the, the club of the rich ones. So I was very strong behind it. But it turned out, you know, and once again, we are getting back to the summer of 2020. And, you know, the scientists, the researchers have to do their homework then. You know, but this is where the, all these decisions were made. And, you know, the noble, the noble function of a government is to protect this, the rights and the, and the, of, of their citizens and to, and to protect citizens from harm. And, you know, this is the moment where we in the we government, so to say, let me say so, had to make the decisions to move forward with the vaccine policies. And in Geneva, Gavi and Kovacs was nowhere because they haven't set up the governance structures properly or quick enough. Maybe it's fair, unfair to say that they didn't do it faster. Maybe they were also overwhelmed. But anyway, the, 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 the junction was in the summer, was July, August 2020, so that we in the European Union had to move forward with our vaccination policies and with our procurement processes to secure the interests of the European citizens you know, we will have time to, to go after all that the, and to examine this process. But I think in the end, we also made very clear, and I think, Anik, you referred already to that fact, that of course we don't need 2.3 billion doses as for the 450 million European citizens. And we will share them immediately, immediately, when we don't need them. And this is, this is clear to the world. But, you know, the whole world, maybe except of Israel and some other very, very, very small places in this global <clears throat> market, we all face the same problem. We don't have enough supply right now. The supply situation will be totally different in quarter two and quarter three of 2021. Not only for us in the European Union, but also on the global scale. And, you know, this will be the moment where we will share the additional surplus of vaccines we can't use within the European Union. Once again, I'm a small Austria. We are already making contracts and deals with some West Balkan countries where we sell. We will resell our surplus. And there are many, many other governments in the European Union who do the same thing. So, the, the, so we will exercise the solidarity and our responsibility to share this advantage with the rest of the world. 
Thank you, Clement. Anik, I want to ask you because uh, you come from the legal expertise and there are two big legal issues at stake right now. One is related to the TRIPS waiver that is being discussed at the World Trade Organization. And again, where the European Union is criticized because of its position. And the second is, as I already mentioned, the discussion of a pandemic treaty that might in itself uh, take up some of the issues, some of the learnings that uh, all of you have uh, have referred to. And again, you know, this uh, piece by President Kagame that I mentioned earlier actually made the point that uh, there are uh, clear rules and exceptions in humanitarian situations, in natural disaster situations uh, that we are not applying in pandemic situations. So could you just comment on, you know, what do you see are critical legal issues, intellectual property, waivers, uh, uh, global treaty agreements? Um, what would you see there and particularly in terms of the role of the EU? So on, on, on the creation of these global public goods with regards to certain medicines, the, the IP waivers, and obviously many people are critiquing the position of the rich countries uh, in this re respect, but I, I do think we have to keep in mind uh, that uh, the business case for pandemic medicines, and actually the same for, for antibiotics, uh, so for new antibiotics, is horrible. It's horrible. So, so having these IP rights is at least one of the things that you can offer to or giving out to uh, to new medicine developers. And it's it's the the question is, and this is a huge political discussion: Are we as government going to create certain medicines by ourselves? Are we going to that 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 would mean that the manufacturing that you would really literally have to do everything basically if you think about it uh, and of course there is already lots of public funding going into all kinds of research and the development of new medicines and there are all kinds of initiative public private partnerships like gavi like but but is is there a time that we say for certain medicines where the business case is so bad like new antibiotics like pandemic vaccines that we say maybe, maybe, um, but, but that is such a huge discussion. You cannot discuss that just on the basis of these IP rights alone, right? These are bigger discussions than that. And so, so, so this is, I think just because of the sheer complexity and the importance of this discussion, just talking about IP rights is not enough. And, and then when you talk about the, the pandemic treaty, honestly, um, I, I do see that there is a need for a better uh, agreement on, on what solidarity means in times of crisis in, in, in international health relations. I think we have a wonderful instrument to do that, which is the WHO. The WHO has a very good capacity also to create actual regulations, which it did in the IHR. Let's improve on the IHR because it's already such a, a huge institutional problem and hurdle to get those types of mechanisms working, um, just to create a new legal instrument alongside of it, I see just, I just see it's an enormous amount of work an enormous loss of expertise that is built up, a loss of the uh, authority that the IHR have 
and, and have been gaining, actually, if you look at the, the, the revised IHR in 2005. So I, I think I would not do that. Do not create a new pandemic treaty. Improve and strengthen what we have right now, because it's hard enough as it is. Uh, thank you, Annie. Clemens, would you agree with that? I mean, there's been a, a detailed analysis that the IHR only takes us so far, and the Director General has said the role he would see for such a treaty is very much a political role. I don't think uh, it was replacing the IHR, but actually surrounding it, if I can put it that, with a casket uh, that would uh, lead to uh, additional commitments, maybe a bit more like the Sendai framework than a new treaty. What do you think, Clemens? How should the discussion be taken forward? I think, you know, uh, I, I'm echoing a little bit uh, Anik here, you know, I mean, as a global citizen, I probably would love to have um, a loser interpretation of intellectual property rights sometimes, you know, just to make sure that there is access to, to, to innovation or to, in that particular case, to the vaccines. But once again, you know, I'm also very, very much aware of that, you know, it's not, it's not, uh, you know, you cannot just snap with the fingers and then there's a production site coming up and they are capable of producing um, uh, a very, very complex, let's say, mRNA vaccine, which is a, a, a scientific miracle by itself, you know, so, so it's not that easy. It's not that easy that you can, so that you can do it. I think, and, you know, I think once again, you know, that we should have done in the spring last year, you know, in 2020, the, the global leaders should have, could have, not should, could have come together and said, you know, okay, we tackle that different you know, and if, uh, let's say, BioNTech or CureVac or whoever, you know, Johnson & Johnson is developing something useful, or the Russians with Sputnik, something promising and useful, we, 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 we put enough money on the table to, to reimburse them for the intellectual property or whatever so that we can have a broader production line. So that we could have done as a global, you know, the global community from leaders, you know, from the rich part maybe. But, you know, there was no time. There was no time, you know. It went so very, very fast. Now it is in the meantime it spilled milk because, you know, the prices are came, came down. I think the, the, the affordability of most of these vaccines is given um, uh, because the industry also realized that it is not the moment where they, the golden age where they can make the biggest money out of it. You know, there are few companies which still think, you know, that they can earn quite a bit. But, you know, to say... AstraZeneca, you know, the villains now out there, they had an impeccable uh, approach to to this whole issue that they said, you know, we are producing for non-profit or for very, very little profit. And I think we also should cherish this. You know, it's an, an impeccable approach of a, of a large European uh, company to say, no, we don't want to make the biggest profits out of it. I think we should cherish these moments too. So I think it's more complex. And then, because you were asking global treaty, yes or no, you know, I am a European uh, student of European politics, and I do know, and I am very much aware how slow these multilateral processes are. And I have my doubts that the family of the United Nations, especially the organizational structures of the United Nations and of WHO, 
would have been the best place to come up with fast and quick policy decisions. I doubt that. Well, we'll see because, you know, both the revision of the IHR after SARS went very quickly and the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control was three years, and that is incredibly short for a treaty. So you member states, yes, have to want it. Exactly. Exactly. This is what that would have been my answer to your in, uh, intervention here. You know, the, we, the member states, didn't want to have a stronger uh, international health regulation. It's up to us to want these kind of things. Maybe we learned a lesson now. You know, I hope so. I hope so. I'm once again one of the <laughs> advocates to do that. But still, it's not an easy process. And I'm with Anik. Let's strengthen the instruments we already have in place before we start fantasizing about something new, which will take another 15 years. Yes, with the exception that, you know, at the same time, while people are saying reform and strengthen the IHR, more or less the same people are saying in the present geopolitical situation, let's not reopen the IHR because it might be weaker in the end rather than stronger. But uh, let me end on that geopolitical note, uh, if I could. Uh, and that is uh, obviously, as we've said, the European Union has said we want to be a key geopolitical actor. And we're seeing that the whole vaccine question is taking on these geopolitical dimensions, how India is approaching it in terms of you know sharing and selling vaccines, how China is approaching it with sharing and uh, selling vaccines vaccines at special prices, uh, plus all the political noise around uh, these things. Probably the United States uh, will also be getting into this business. Let's remember PEPFAR, how that was established, and we could well see something like that for vaccines as well. So if you were going to advise uh, Ursula von der Leyen, uh, how would you say she should position herself right now in terms of uh, the uh, geopolitics of vaccines? Anik, what would you advise her? Well, I think she has a little bit of recovering to do first. Um, but after the recovery, I would say actually the road that the EU was on within COVAX. Uh, strengthening uh, its partnership with international organizations and its role, because for the EU that is not a given to be to 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 have the voice of all the member states, to be able to represent all the member states, uh, especially in an area where uh, where competences are weak. Uh, it's not, you know, the competences as you and I wrote, uh, Ilona, that the EU has internally. Uh, translate externally. So I think the EU has already been taken on uh, a stronger role in global health. And I would say stay on that road to the extent that you can, uh, but don't obviously um, uh, lose the member states in the process because there's nothing worse than having uh, mixed voices coming out of the EU. So, so as long as you don't have this uh, political pact to have that one voice of Europe in global health, don't go there. Thank you. Clement? I see it on a very practical <clears throat> level because I'm also involved in this uh, plans to how to share our vaccines with, with the neighborhood. 
with a non-EU neighborhood and with a larger world. And I think we have to, we we have to do one thing to speed up and give a perspective. You know, I see it with our West Balkan neighbors uh, because they are looking at us and we are telling them, "Be yes, we will help you," but we haven't given them given them concrete dates delivery dates, so to say, uh, we, you know, and, and, you know, I'm looking in my own mirror, you know, because we have, we, we are in the process of setting up contracts with some of these uh, countries there, but I'm not in a position to tell them you, in April 1st or April 15, you are getting something, but in this vacuum, you know, the, the Russians step in and sell them, you know, 5,000 doses and have a big media campaign and the same is coming, doing, the Chinese are doing it. And we missed this opportunity, you know. We missed that opportunity because I was approached by several ministers, you know, or my minister, and you know, uh, but, you know, some of them approached me personally because they know me and said, you know, Clemens, can we have a 1,000 doses of Pfizer just to symbolically to start vaccinating and we were not capable of doing that i think that that was our mistake here you know because if we should would have done that you know then 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 they would have been reassured that we are really uh, uh, on their side we are on their side but we are not as fast as the Russians delivering a thousand doses or the Chinese delivering a thousand doses, because it's not more, friends. It's not more. Even if you look at the Serbian numbers, you know, be a little bit critical what you read in the press, you know. Uh, this is, it's, it's not all the truth, you know, which, which is, which is written there. But, you know, these, these are the thing. And I think Funderlein, and I, and I do know that they are preparing a council meeting on that with the leaders, not with the ministers of health. Because we, the ministers of health, we are more on the brake paddle here because we say, oh, we don't have enough for our own people, you know. We, we cannot fulfill our own vaccination plans. You know, we can't give up, uh, uh, let, let's say, you know, um, I don't know, two million doses is wherever. Uh, so this has to be decided by the, by the heads of states and the the, the prime ministers on that level so that we do that and I, I do know that the president van der Leyen is working in that direction just to speed up and show true solidarity with our neighborhood but that's what what we have to do otherwise you know my, my message here is we have to give in a perspective you know we have to give dates and numbers and not only promises and right now, they only have promises, good promises, and we will execute the promises, but we have to be better on the dates and numbers. Thank you very much, Clemens. I think, you know, that's a nice closure to our podcast. I think one of the messages is, uh, you know, Europe can become geopolitically smarter, perhaps. Uh, it should explain what it is doing much better, both globally and within the European Union. And uh, I think also the member states have to be for once perhaps a bit more honest about what is Brussels fault and what is not. And I think uh, your issues around speed, around the extraordinary progress to have a vaccine actually, to have more than one vaccine, and that we can actually have the discussions we are having now, how to distribute it rather than have a discussion, when will the vaccine finally come, is uh, really a historic situation. So I'd like to thank you very much. I think you argued that everything we're experiencing 
is an argument for a stronger European health union, a union that can act decisively with and for its member states, and a union that can show true global solidarity. So thank you very much for this conversation. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to our podcast. Please visit europeanhealthunion.eu to learn more and support the initiative and follow us at EHU Initiative on Twitter. Stay tuned for our upcoming events.